know, when I first came to uh, Grace Point Church, one of the first things I was asked to do was to fill out a survey of information that they were going to put on the, on the church website of me. And they asked several different questions like, what kind of food do you like? Uh, what's the most difficult thing that you've ever done? Um, I found out this week that I flunked one of those questions because one of the questions was, who's your favorite fictional character? And I put Andy Griffith only to find out that he's not really fictional. It was Andy Taylor that was fictional, but I don't know that I can separate the two anyway. But one of the most provocative questions in that survey for me was, what do you want the first line of your biography to be? What do you want that line to say? And so I'm going to ask you the same question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. What do you want your biography to say about you? When somebody writes the story of your life, What's going to be the most important thing? What's going to be the thing that stands out? Because, see, I believe that God's put in every one of us the desire to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, be part of something that's going to outlast us. You see that in athletics all the time. Athletes want to be the, the one that hits the most home runs, the ones that scores the most touchdowns, or they want to be part of a team that wins the most championships. They want to be, be part of the Hall of Fame because they want to be part of something that's going to outlive them. You see it in business because people will build businesses because they want this business to last longer than them. And so I think God has put in us this innate desire to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. What will be the legacy of your life? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What will be the legacy of your life? We're going to be looking today at a story that's probably very familiar to you. And we're going to be looking at the book of Joshua. So if you want to turn to the book of Joshua, I'm going to kind of give you the backstory, story. And, and we're, you're probably very familiar with that. The people of Israel had been enslaved in, in Egypt for 400 years. And God had raised up Moses and, and to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. And you remember the story of all the plagues and, and how they, they left. They finally got to leave Egypt. And they, they came across and they, and they came to the, to the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was behind them, and the Red Sea was in front of them, and they were scared to death. And you remember the story how God miraculously parted the Red Sea, and the, and the people of Israel crossed over on the Red Sea, and in fact, the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea. And you remember all the story that goes on beyond that. They finally come to the promised land, the land that God had promised them that was full of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey. They came to the very precipice of the promised land, and all that divided them from the promised land was the Jordan River. And they were afraid to cross it. They sent 12 spies into the promised land to find out, what, just, just to spy out the land. They came back and they said, those guys are tough. They're mean. They're a lot bigger than us. And 10 of the spies says, we can't do it. We cannot take that land. I, I, I don't see how we can do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, listen, if God's brought us this far and done all these miraculous things, he surely can bring us across the Jordan River into the promised land and we can take that land. But unfortunately, the majority ruled. And so the people of Israel doubted that their God was powerful enough to take them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And as a result, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Until everyone that was associated with that decision was dead, except for Joshua and Caleb. And we come to the point now where Joshua and Caleb are the only ones left, and Joshua is now leading the people of Israel. And in, in chapter 3, verse 5, he comes and he says, Now today, it, he says, Get ready, 
because today the, or tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among you. And Joshua told him to do something very interesting. He got the people of Israel and he said, now listen, a million plus strong. He said, now listen, I want you to march toward the Jordan, toward the Jordan River. And he put the, the, the chief priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant in front of the people. And he said, I want you to march toward the Jordan River. And when you get to the Jordan River, you just keep on marching. And so the chief priest did that. They came to the Jordan River they put, and they put their foot in the water. And Scripture says that when their foot touched the water, the water piled up in a heap a long ways away. What a great picture that is. And the, and the priest with the Ark of the Covenant, the very... The Ark of the Covenant, you need to understand, was the most precious treasure that Israel had. It represented the very presence of God. They marched down into the riverbed, and they stood on the riverbed until the whole people of Israel, all million-plus strong of them, crossed the Jordan River into the land that God had finally prom- had promised them. They were finally there. And then we look, I mean, it's just an amazing story. And then we come to Joshua 4, our text for this morning. In Joshua 4, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. If you were to read a little bit further, you'll see in verses 8 and 9 that that God told Joshua to have these men take these twelve stones that they took out of the river and to build a memorial, to build a monument. Now, this is not the first time that God had the people of Israel build a monument. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that God instituted the practice of having His people, the people of Israel, build memorials. And, and we see first one in, in Genesis chapter 9 on your, on your uh, worship guide. You'll see a list of, uh, of references. In Genesis chapter 9, after surviving the flood, Noah built an altar. The second one in Abraham, he was about to sacrifice Isaac. And you remember the story that God provided a ram in the thicket. In fact, Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the God who provides because he provided a a substitute. And and, and Abraham built an altar there. And from then on, every time the people of Israel heard the name of God, Jehovah-Jireh, they thought back to that time where God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. When God promised to be with Isaac, Isaac built an altar. In Genesis 28, when God appeared to Jacob, Jacob built an altar. In Exodus chapter 17, after Moses defeated the Amalekites, he built an altar. In fact, he called that place Jehovah Nisi, meaning Yahweh is is my victory. In Judges, after an angel appeared to Gideon, guess what? He built an altar. When God gave Samuel a victory over the Philistines, he erected a stone in remembrance. David, even in 2 Samuel, erected an altar to the Lord that brought God's wrath to an end. And then we see the story that we just talked about in Joshua, where Joshua, after they crossed the Jordan River, they built a memorial. So apparently, memorials are rather important to God and his relationship with people. But why did God have Joshua build this memorial, this monument? See, I think it's because God knows how we are. The people of Israel had had experienced a tumultuous pilgrimage all the way from Egypt, and a lot of things had gone wrong, and and they they had suffered a lot. But because they doubted that their God was able to carry them across the Jordan River into the promised land, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God miraculously parts the Jordan River. 
See, God knew that the Israelites would face intimidating enemies, and they would need a reminder that he was powerful enough to protect them. Because otherwise they might think, you know, I think we might have made a mistake coming in here to Canaan. So God had them build this memorial to remember what he had done in their lives. God knew that every time the Israelites would see this memorial, would see this monument, they'd remember that it wasn't because of their own ability, it wasn't because of their own strength that they'd cross the Jordan, but it was because of the strength of their God. So when times grew difficult and confusing, the Israelites could look back and remember what God had done for them. Remember how he delivered them from Egypt, how he delivered them from the Red Sea, and again how he delivered them from Jordan. And this gave them a clear sense of purpose, a clear sense of direction. And it gave them confidence for the future, too, because what's coming up is the walled cities of Jericho. And you can imagine that the people of Israel who weren't, who weren't fighters and had no army were going to face the city of Jericho with its big walls and its standing army. And God knew that they would need a reminder of, why, of, of what he could do for them. So I guess the question is, in terms of these memorials, is what can we learn from this? What can we learn from the fact that God has had his people build memorials? I think the first thing we can learn is that this monument, this memorial, these memorials were to be a reminder to everyone present of their personal experience, of what they heard, what they saw, what they felt. It was supposed to be a visible reminder of God's faithfulness. Now, see... The Jordan River was only about, people think it's probably about 100 feet wide. Probably about the width of this room is 100 feet wide during the dry season. However, Scripture says that when they crossed the Jordan River, it was during the springtime. And the snow had started melting up in the mountains and turned the Jordan River into this, from this dry season, 100-foot river to, estimates are that it could be as much as a mile wide and 150 feet deep. So it wasn't just any small river. Last week I had the opportunity to, to drive uh, to Tennessee, and I drove across the, Missis- the Mississippi River at Memphis. And if you've done that, you know that's a pretty, that's a pretty long span. And I checked it on my odometer, and from, co- from bank to bank, it was less than three-quarters of a mile. And I looked back at that, and I thought, oh, my soul, can you imagine trying to march a million people across a mile-wide mile river? So this was no, this was no small feat. And these stones were to be a silent reminder of the time when God's people boldly placed their feet in the surging river of the Jordan River, the surging water of the Jordan River, and God delivered them safely to the other side. That was the point of this memorial, this monument. See, because memorials keep alive in our hearts and our minds memories of something significant that's happened. I've lived in Oklahoma for probably the last 30 years, and and I lived in Oklahoma when the, uh, the Murrah Federal Building was bombed in 1995. And so in Oklahoma City, they've re- erected a monument, a memorial to the Oklahoma City bombing victims. It's very, very powerful and poignant. They've done that to keep alive a memory. In fact, the slogan is, we will never forget. We will never forget. And that was the purpose of these memorials, these monuments that God had the people of Israel make. So consider with me. What are the memorials in your life? Whether you realize it or not, we all have memorials. And they they may not be, in fact, they're probably not monuments of stone, but the memorials of memories of places and things that, and 
events that trigger memories, just like these memorial stones are supposed to trigger memories for the people of Israel. I think it was Henry Blackaby that coined the phrase spiritual marker. And, and he said the spiritual markers identify times of transition and decision or direction when God has clearly guided. It's an event in your life that God has interpreted for you. There are or there should be some significant spiritual memories in your life, some significant spiritual milestones in your life that elicit such memories. You know, we find in Scripture that after Jesus came, you don't really see a lot of, of people building altars and monuments and memorials like they did in the Old Testament. But people still had spiritual markers. Think of the life of Peter with me. You, you know Peter, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think when he looked back over his life, he saw significant spiritual markers. I think the first one may have come when, when Jesus said, come follow me. And that changed the direction of Peter's life forever. I think of the time when, I think that probably another spiritual marker was when, when Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. And he said, on this rock, on this confession that you are Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, he said, on this confession... I'm going to build my church. I think it changed, it, changed, it changed Peter's perception of himself. It changed his understanding of who he was and who he could be. And then when Peter walked on the water, albeit very briefly, when he walked on the water, I think it changed his understanding of who Jesus was. It was another spiritual marker for him. And finally, I think that when Jesus washed Peter's feet. It changed Peter's understanding. It changed his idea of what a disciple meant, what being a disciple really meant. So it's important to keep a clear memory of what God is doing in your life. What kind of memorials do you have? What are your spiritual markers? What are those times in your life that you knew that God was speaking to you, that God was working around you. They may be memories of experiences. It may be memories of God answering prayer. It may be memories of, of God's provision. It may be memories of you seeing God work in your life. You should, and, and I would dare say that you must, do something to remember what God's done for you. You've got to remember, just like these memorial stones for the people of Israel, you've got to do something to remember what God's doing in your life because we have really bad memories. We go through a season of our life when, when things are difficult and, and we say, man, God is really working now. I can see God working. And we don't take good notes. And we get a little bit removed from that season and we'll go, yeah, I remember that God was doing something then, but frankly, I don't know. I don't remember what he said. I just... So we've got to create these memorials in our life, these memorials and these, these memories. Secondly, these memorials are to be a platform to share their faith with their children. One of God's intentions with these memorials was to elicit questions from future generations. Twice in two different places in this chapter, the parents were reminded of their responsibility to communicate God's word and his calling to their children. In verses 6 and 7, it says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
Verses 21 and 23, he said it again. He said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. See, new generations were to see these memorials, these monuments of these stones, and they were to ask, what do these stones mean? What are they here for? And I can, I can imagine that those that crossed over the Jordan River, they're standing maybe with their kids or their grandkids or, or youngsters that had been born in the Promised Land, and they're standing beside this memorial that's half a mile from that dry season Jordan River because it says that they built this memorial on the banks of the flooded Jordan River. So it could have been a half a mile from the Jordan. And so they tell, they tell these youngsters, they say, you know, God delivered us from the Jordan River. And the kids are going, doesn't look that tough. And the, and the elders would say, well, let me tell you about it. This is how big it was. This is how big the river was when God dried it up and we crossed across it. It was a mile wide. See this monument? See this memorial? See the Jordan River? That's how far we had to walk. That's how big the river was when God did it. it was a, so it was a, it was a challenge to, to, for them to understand how big God was. So I challenge you to spend some time thinking about your spiritual memorial stone. Let these memorial stones draw you closer to God. Help them remind you of God's faithfulness. And then as important as anything else, pass these stories along to your children and others that are coming behind you. Keep telling your God stories so that you never lose your sense of awe and wonder at what God's done in your life. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. My parents were missionaries. I grew up uh, overseas, actually graduated from, from high school uh, in about halfway, halfway around the world. My dad was a pastor. Besides being a missionary, he was a pastor. He was an author of about, I don't even know, I'll say 15 books. Uh, at different points in his career, he was an executive with Lifeway in their discipleship division. He spent 10 years as the vice president for overseas operations for the International Mission Board, the IMB. In fact, I think he was probably the vice president when when Mike and Lori went to, to Africa. And, and so he was responsible for all of the IMB missionaries at that time. And my parents passed on to me and my four siblings a great legacy of faith. All of my siblings are active, strong believers. One is a, a deacon, a leader, a teacher in his church. Two are bi- bivocational pastors. My sister actually lives with her family in Asia as a missionary now. And between the five of us, we have 16 children, and all 16 are following God, all 16 grandchildren of my my dad. Now, three of those 16 are my kids, and they're all grown up now, but they're serving God, and they're living for God in their churches. One of them is actually a missionary in Asia. So you can see the legacy of faith that flows through my family. But a legacy of faith doesn't just happen. It isn't wished into existence. It takes prayer. It takes participation. It takes a personal interest. Sometimes I think that people believe that they can wake up in the morning, fall out of bed, and create a legacy of faith. It doesn't happen that way. 
legacy of faith is like a, it's like a flame. You have to tend it. If you walk away from it for a time, it'll probably go out. You've got to keep this flame, flame burning. You've got to tend it. You've got to pay attention to it. It requires a living example if you want to keep that flame alive. Let me give you an example. Because of my dad's position, he accumulated literally hundreds of thousands of flight miles. And there came a time probably 15 years ago when my parents, because they have a heart for the nations, they decided that they were going to take, as the grandkids got older, they were going to take one grandkid with them every summer to wherever they were going in the world to, give, to expose them to the world, to expose them what God was doing in the world. Collectively, my kids went to Cuba, Taiwan, Philippines, Malawi, Zambia. And my, my parents used their flight miles to do that. Some of their cousins went to the Middle East, to Indonesia, to South America. Now, the reality is that most of us are not going to have the resources to take people around the world using our flight miles. But the point is that my parents could have used those hundreds of thousands of flight miles and probably spent three, week, three months in Maui. But they decided, they made an intentional decision that they were going to pass along a heritage of faith to my kids and to, and to their cousins. So I'm going to ask you, are you living in such a way that people will remember you for your faithfulness? Where are the stones of God's activity in your life? Somewhere along the way, has God turned your aches into your strength? Somewhere along the way, has God turned your pain into your gain? Somewhere along the way, has God turned your test into a testimony? You ought to be able to point to those stones. You ought to be able to point to that place in time, that moment in your past, that spot in your life, that spark that got you going. You ought to be able to point to that time. You ought to be able to point to those stones so that you can tell those that are coming behind you. Thirdly, the memorial stones are to be a signpost to a godless world. Verse 24 of Joshua 4 says, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's always been God's plan that the whole world would know that he's the one true and living God. That's always been his plan. Not only was the crossing of Jordan supposed to be an inspiring event for the people of Israel, it was to be a message to anybody that saw it about the power of Israel's God. It was not only to be a time of remembering what God had, had done, but it was to be a, a witness to anybody that was watching about how powerful he is. And a memorial should tell of God's activity more should tell not only of God's past activity, but it should also tell of, of how God's working in your life, the mighty power of God in the present in your life. Have you ever considered that God did what he did in your life so that you will experience the power of God? 
that maybe God did what he did in your life so that others will see the power of Lord of the Lord working in your life? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought that now I understand why I wasn't healed immediately? God used that to develop my faith. God used that to have other people see the power of prayer. Now I understand why I wasn't healed. Now I understand why God didn't rescue me from that situation. So that people will understand, so that folks will understand that all things work together for the good of them, the love of the Lord, and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. Now I understand why I went through what I went through. So that people will know the power of God. See, that's why they put these rocks where they did. It was to be a memorial of faith, a memorial of the, of the supernatural in, at work in a place where it seemed impossible. This memorial, this monument of stone was, was to be a memorial that reminded them, reminded them that where, where man couldn't, God could. It was to be a memorial to remind them that where man couldn't, God. And we, too, must set some stones. We, too, must remember our stories and pass them along to those that are coming behind us. Let me tell you the rest of my story. You see, the legacy of faith in my family didn't start with my father. It actually started a generation before him. His mother and father were very strong believers. My dad had two siblings. The three of them, all of them were active believers, trusting in Jesus. Um... And, and actually, besides my, my father, one of his sisters actually went as a missionary as well to, to South America. But his dad, my grandfather, didn't have a legacy of faith like that. My grandfather was born in West Tennessee about 110 years ago. And his dad, he never knew his father. His dad passed away when he was an infant. And when he was in sixth grade, my grandfather dropped out of school so he could work on the family farm. At age 19, he met Jesus in a tent revival. And he believed that God was calling him to preach. He used to tell stories about standing on stumps in the, in the field and preaching to the cows. But he knew that if he was going to have, if he was going to be a preacher, he had to have an education. So at age 19... When, when the fall rolled around, he went back to school and sat down in the sixth grade, age 19. The teachers looked at him, probably twice as big as any of the kids there, and asked, what are you doing here? When they found out, they, they graciously advanced him a couple of years. And in a few years, he graduated from high school. He sent out letters of application to colleges and got several back. I don't know how many, three, five, six letters back. He only opened one. He laid, the, he laid the letters out on his bed, and he prayed over them, and he said, God, you tell me which one to open. You just tell me which one to open, and that's the one I'll open. He prayed over them. He picked up the letter he felt God was op- telling him to open, and he threw the rest of them away, unopened. We never knew what they said. Could have been scholarships. I don't know what they said, but never knew. He took that letter and went to that college. He gets to college, and 
He's matriculating. You know, that first day of school where you find out what your classes are and how much you're going to have to pay and where the buildings are and all those kinds of things. And he gets to the front of the line, and the registrar says, uh, how do you intend to pay for college? He said, what do you mean? See, my grandfather thought that college was free, just like public school was, like grade school was. She says, well, son, you got to pay for college. He said, well, you tell God that because God's the one who told me to come here. I mean, you talk about faith. Well, there was a dean standing nearby that, that overheard the conversation. And the dean called him up and, and, and said, listen, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you on a work-study program and let, you, and let you work your way through college. And so he did. About three weeks later, the dean ran into my grandfather at college and said, hey, hey, son, how's it going? My grandfather said, well, you know, school is going pretty good, but I'm really hungry. He said, hungry? What do you mean? He said, well, all I've been doing is eating crackers for the last three weeks. That's all I can afford. And the dean said, son, did you not understand that the program I put you on included your meals? My grandfather never forgot that lesson. He would use that as an illustration when he preached on Ephesians 3, where it talks about how as believers we have access to the unsearchable riches of Christ, but very few of us live like we do. Every believer has has access to the unsearchable riches of Christ, and a lot of us live like paupers and we're eating on crackers. My grandfather was a pastor for 50 years. My father was a pastor for 50 years. So that you can see that faith legacy that continued in my family actually started two generations before me. Which speaks to the power of a legacy. Let me ask you. Are you living a story of faith? Are you living a God story? Or is God one of those things that you squeeze into on Sunday morning? Do the people around you know your stories of faith? Do the people around you know how God has worked in your life, how he's spoken to you? I've talked about passing along a legacy of faith. How does one pass that along? I talked about that you need it, it needs prayer, it takes participation, it takes personal interest, but I'm also going to tell you that it takes intentionality. I gave you the example of my mom and dad taking our, taking our kids around the world. But there are examples that are a lot cheaper than that one. Two years ago this month, my dad passed away from leukemia. If you read his obituary, you will see that, that a reference to three great-grandchildren. I'm going to let you in on a little family secret. One of those children had not yet been born. My son and his wife had announced just a month prior that they were pregnant. A week before... They were to, my son and his wife were to return to Asia 
where they serve as missionaries. A week before they were supposed to return, to return there, my dad's health took a turn for the worse. And so they came over to see him knowing that, um, that they wouldn't see him again. This is the last time. They walked into his room down here at Mercy Hospital. The first thing he said was, come here and let me pray for that baby. And he laid his hand on Allison's belly and he prayed a blessing over Ethan. That was on Monday. Early Friday morning, he passed away. But what a blessing. What an example of how to intentionally leave a legacy. How to be intentional about passing along your faith. I have to ask you, are you intentionally creating a legacy of faith? Are you living a story of faith? Are you leaving a story of faith for those that are coming behind you? I'm going to give you an opportunity to put put feet to this message this morning. I'm going to ask every one of you to do something here in a minute. As As the worship band sings over us, we have six stations around, two in the front, two on the side, and two in the back of what I'm calling our Joshua Rocks. And as they sing over us, I'm going to ask you to get up from your seat and come get two rocks. There are two rocks for each person and take them back to your seat and be thinking about your legacy. What will be your legacy? How will you pass that along? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do with these stones. I want you to take them home and I want you to take one of them and put it in a prominent place to remind you to be intentionally leaving a legacy. It might be on your bathroom sink. It might be on your dining room table. It might be on your desk at work. But leave it there so that when you see it, it reminds you that you're supposed to be intentional about leaving a legacy. Here's here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you to do with the second stone. If there's somebody in your life that has poured into you, that has passed along to you a legacy of faith, I want you to give this rock to them. I want you to tell them the story about Joshua. And I want you to thank them and encourage them for passing along to you a legacy of faith. Now, I know there's some of you might be saying, that's a, really good, that's a really good idea, but there's nobody behind me. I, I don't have a legacy of faith like you have. Hallelujah. You can be the first. You can be the first in a generation to pass along a legacy of faith. You can be like my grandfather. You can be the one that starts a legacy of faith in your family. So I'm going to ask you to keep that second stone. If there's nobody for you to give that to, I... I want you to keep it and give it to somebody when the time comes. When the time is right, I want to ask you to give that stone to somebody coming along behind you and say, and tell them the story. Tell them your stories. Tell them how God has worked in your life. You can't change the past, but you can certainly influence the future. 
just be intentional about leaving a legacy. You might say, yeah, but I don't have kids at home anymore. You may, you may be like me. My kids are grown. And I really don't have any legacy to pass on. I don't have anyone to pass along a legacy to. Really? Really? You don't think that your 10 years of experience, your 20, your 30 years of experience with God is worth passing on to somebody? Find somebody and pour into them and pass along and see what God will do in the generations that follow. What a privilege that is. Now, I know that some of you, let me ask you last time, if you want to leave an eternal legacy, the cornerstone of that legacy has to be Jesus Christ. There's no other way to leave a legacy, whether it's athletics or business, there's no other way to leave a legacy that lasts for eternity except through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, what is your relationship with Jesus? You might say, you know, it's, it's better than it's ever been before. Hallelujah. You might say, you know, if I'm being truthful, my relationship with God, I used to be a lot closer with God. I used to have a much stronger relationship with God than I do now. This is a time for you to get it right. And there may be some of you here today that say, you know, this is a very interesting concept, but if I'm going to be completely honest, I'd have to tell you that I don't even know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't even know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about a legacy of faith. Well, this is the opportunity for you to correct that and get that right. I would encourage you, after we're done here, come talk to to me or Eric or Mike or Caleb get that settled today because Jesus has got to be the cornerstone of your life if you're going to pass along a legacy that's going to last 